Drone Talks is an online platform to spread ideas and to educate in the drone ecosystem to enable and foster innovation for a better future. Welcome back to the Drone Talk series dedicated to standards. Uh, we are back today with uh, Mike Lasko, chair of the ASTM WK63418, uh, to continue the conversation around the UTM USS interoperability standard. Before we dive into other services defining the standard, Mike, could you give us a quick update on the status of the two key standards, the remote identification and the UTM USS interoperability? Sure, happy to do that, uh, Lorenzo. And, and it's nice to be back to finish this uh, the long interview series. I, th these have been a lot of fun. So the two standards, we have one that's uh, for remote ID and that was published uh, almost two years ago. It's F341119. And that one, we have uh, recently been going through a revision because the FAA re released their rule uh, and we had to make a few minor updates for that. So we've been through the ballot process on that. Um, there were you know, just a few minor changes and we're also developing a mock that goes along with that for compliance to the FAA rule. And uh, so that we expect the, the ballot process on both of those documents to finish over the next couple of months and to have that be republished uh, certainly by the end of the year. The, the USS interoperability standard uh, that we've been talking about is it's similar time-wise. Uh, we have gone through a first ballot on that. We expect to go back into the second ballot, uh, which hopefully will be the final ballot uh, around the end of September. And then to get through the publishing process, you know, hopefully by the end of the year, that one is, is published as well. In both cases, going through the ballot process has been a generally positive thing. We haven't, you know, there's no major changes coming as a result. Uh, so I think they're both on track uh, to, to be out by the end of the year. Okay, Mike, so let's go back to the UTM uh, USS interoperability standard, right? And uh, in our first interview, we discussed the uh, discovery and synchronization service, the DSS, operational intents, and the strategic conflict detection. What are the other services that you would like to talk about uh, today? I, I think it's easier to see this visually instead of trying to remember all the services in your head. So I've pulled in a figure here that we can look at that lists all the services and the roles that are defined in the USS interoperability standard to, to look at. So you can see up at the top here, we have something called strategic coordination. And strategic coordination includes conflict detection that we talked about last time. And it also includes uh, something we didn't talk about called aggregate operational intent conformance monitoring. The, the next major one you see here that uh, folks will probably be familiar with is, is conformance monitoring for situational awareness. And we put qualifiers on these names we wanted to distinguish between a conformance monitoring that is providing tactical situational awareness versus that aggregate operational intent conformance monitoring, which is more of a strategic uh, type of conformance monitoring. And we can talk about that as we go further. And then the third major area you see uh, down the bottom of the blue box and in the, the pink box is constraints. Uh, there's a constraint uh, management role to, for creating constraints and there's a constraint processing service that is uh, how you take that information and make it available to, to operators. So all those things are defined in the standard and most importantly, the interoperability required between the different USSs that are either creating uh, the constraints or consuming them or doing conflict detection, all the interoperability with the other participants is also uh, specified in the standard. So aggregate operational intent 
conformance monitoring. I, I can see an acronym coming here. It's going to be very <laughs> nice, right? And, but sorry, it's, it's not intuitively obvious what that is. Like, can you describe this for us? Some of these, I tell you, names are one of the trickiest things to deal with when you're when you're writing a standard that, you know, hopefully people are going to be looking at for the next 20, 30 years. Uh, how you name it is uh, a lot of pressure. Um, so aggregate operational intent conformance monitoring goes back to some of our discussion about, about operational intents. Uh, and about the, the performance-based uh, sizing of those operational intents to support uh, strategic conflict detection and specifically to achieve a target level of safety as a result of using that service. We, we have requirements in the standard that the operational intents must conform to their, uh, that the UAS must conform to their operational intents a certain percentage of the time. Uh, and right now the value we're working with is 95%. Uh, and there are some other requirements in there that deal with things like the number of excursions you can have uh, uh, per flight hour uh, from the operational intent. Uh, and again, all those are are uh, conceived and and, and uh, were developed to support a particular target level of safety. So, it, so the result is that um, if the operational intents are built such that you are in fact conforming at the right rate, then you can meet that target level of safety that we're trying to support. Um, but if you're not uh, conforming to your operational intents consistently at that rate, then the, the benefit of the service is degraded. Um, so the idea here is, is not to look at individual flights in a tactical sense and say, hey, you're out of conformance right now. Uh, the intent is to look at an operator's flights over a period of time, perhaps daily, uh, perhaps uh, you know some minimum number of aggregate flight hours and to look at holistically all of their operational intents and basically say, are you consistently meeting the conformance requirements or are you consistently not meeting them? Maybe you're hitting 90% conformance instead of 95. And if that's happening, that we're not gonna meet the overall uh, safety objective that we're trying to meet. So the service, uh, this, this service is basically looking retroactively over flights over a period of time and then and in the whole saying yes you are meeting the requirements or you're not and if you're not it generates alerts and sends those to the operator and then they would have to take corrective corrective action to, to deal with the situation um, the corrective action might be that they need to make their operational intents a little bit bigger maybe they're they're working with their uss but perhaps they're just not being made quite big enough and that needs to be adjusted but it might be something else. It could be that there's something going on in the operator's operational environment with a particular pilot or something uh, where they're, they're not missing, uh, where they're missing that conformance requirement. So they would need to take steps to address that as well. It seems to me that regulators might pitch in into this, like you speak about that yeah. level of safety, you know, uh, percentage of the time under which, you know, this conformance is expected. Is the standard dealing with this aspect as well, or how does it take into account? In a couple of ways. So we're going to talk, uh, I, I would imagine, in a little bit, a little bit about the safety case a little bit more. But the uh, uh, the main thing we try to do here is it, in writing standards is we have to stay away from the regulatory aspect of things. Our, our goal in general is to give regulators a toolbox uh, to meet whatever the regulatory objectives are that they have. Uh, so in this case, uh, the toolbox we want to give them is uh, a capability to to do the monitoring and to detect situations that need to be alerted so that the, the operator can go deal with the situation. Uh, how the regulator may choose to use those tools is, is up to them, quite frankly. But you could imagine things like um, 
you know, if you're uh, below some some threshold uh, for some period of time, then, you know, you have to address it within a certain period of time. And, you know, maybe flights are suspended or maybe the USS is not allowed to interact in the ecosystem for some period of time. Those are fairly draconian measures. And we're not suggesting that's the way it should work, uh, you know, as normal course of business. But whatever decisions are made there, that's the regulators call to make. And we'll just give them the tools to support that process. And you mentioned safety, Mike, you know, something that is uh, near and dear to my heart. And uh, <laughs> I mean, it relates a lot to my work with the JALOS Working Group Safety Risk Management on the on the SORA. So it's a standard addressing the, the issue of a safety case and how it relates to the different services that it defines. Does it pinpoint to others? How, how would it work then? Yeah, so this is one of the things that we're most focused on as we go uh, from the first ballot to the second ballot. There obviously are some requirements in the standard that uh, relate to to, to safety. Uh, for example, the one we've been discussing, the, the uh, percentage of time that you have to conform to your operational intent. And clearly there needs to be a basis for those requirements that people can understand. Um, you know, why are we saying that it has to be 95% conformance or why can there be a limit to the number of excursions uh, per flight hour? So we wanna provide information and we're, we're looking for the best way to do this. There'll be at least some kind of uh, summary information provided in the standard we may publish in another venue some white papers that support, uh, that provide the analysis for how we arrived at where we arrived. But we want to make sure that that uh, users of the standard uh, can understand why the requirements are written the way they are and what benefit is it going to provide. The primary focus for this first version of the standard it, with respect to safety is strategic conflict detection. And over time, we'll probably address some other aspects of it. But that's the main objective. And uh, there's been quite a bit of analysis and some simulation work that's gone on to uh, to try to come up with with information that supports this. And, and I, I think what we will probably do is is dedicate a future video just to the safety topic so that people can get an overview of what was the logic behind uh, our, our safety thinking and what was the basis for some of those numbers. So I, I don't want to uh, jump the gun and, and sort of pre-announce what, what some of those results would be. Uh, we'll save that to the folks who have worked the most on the safety case. But, but the key result is folks are going to see that there is a dramatic reduction in the probability of having mid-air collisions uh, between UAS by using the strategic deconfliction service. And, and that's, that's the main objective. Many of us, I think, in the community uh, look forward to hearing more on that. I, I, can, I can hear BV loss, you know, <laughs> coming. Yeah, <in>. absolutely. <laughs> so that's, that's great. Uh, anyway, Mike, let's move on to another form of uh, conformance monitoring. You mentioned the conformance monitor for situational awareness. Uh, what's that? Can you describe us? Yeah, so, so this is more the, I think, what most people traditionally think of when you say conformance monitoring. It, it's taking the real-time position data received from the aircraft or potentially from a surveillance source. We, we focused on the data from the aircraft in this first version of the standard, but comparing it to where it's intending to fly per its operational intent and, and detecting when it's not inside its operational intent, uh, which would mean that it's non-conforming and taking some actions in response to that. So. The main action that happens in, in the context of this first version of the standard when there is a non-conformance is that we want to provide situational awareness to the other operators and USSs that have operations in the area where this non-conformance takes place. 
so so conformance monitoring for situational awareness is is to pass that information on to the other folks that are potentially affected by it the uh um i i wanted to use a couple of graphics to help talk to this from the standard as well this first one and we're not going to go through this in gory detail uh it's the state transition diagram for the operational intents uh, and there's just a couple of key threads that I wanted to to, uh, to show here. Um, if you look at it, you see down the middle, there's sort of the nominal path. We, we have a, an operational intent that goes to the accepted state. At some point, it becomes activated when it actually takes off. And as long as it stays in conformance to its operational intent, doesn't go out, it eventually just transitions to the ended state. And that's a perfectly nominal flight. Accepted, activated, fly according to your operational intent, and then you end the flight. But off of that activated state, there's a couple of things that can happen. You can go outside of your operational intent and that puts you into non-conforming. Most of the time you would be able to recover from that. But in certain circumstances where perhaps control has been lost of the UAS, you may wind up going to the contingent state. So in non-conforming, you can come back to active, activated and in contingent, you cannot. Contingent has to lead to the, to the termination of the flight. Pause for just a second here about going to non-conforming and talk about this because um, when, you, when you say something like a flight must conform 95% of the time to its operational intent, I think what most people immediately start to think of or what many people start to think of is that, wait a minute, are you saying that 5% of the time they can just fly wherever they want? And the answer is no. Um, you can think of there being sort of a, a, a graduated uh, notion of nonconformance, where most nonconformances are going to be very minor. The guys that worked our safety case had the analogy of when you when they design roads, uh, they put rumble strips on the edges of them, and if you hit the rumble strip, that's kind of a flag to the to the driver. You know, get back in your lane. Most nonconformances are going to be like hitting the rumble strip. You're not just flying wherever you want for 5% of the time. You hit the rumble strip, you immediately correct, and you get back in, uh, and, and everything's good. And in most of those cases, by the time you've detected that you hit the rumble strip and that you're slightly out, by the time you've already corrected and you're back in before you could even notify other people about it. Then there's going to be sort of the next graduated level of nonconformance where maybe you're really blown off course and it's going to take you 10 seconds or something to get back in. And, and so that will be less frequent, um, will happen sometimes. And then there's the, the worst case where something's really gone wrong. So your nonconformance, you're probably not going to be able to re recover from it. And it's really a prelude to that contingent state where you're, you're not going to be able to recover. So we have a, a uh, capability, you know, if folks were looking closely at this diagram, they'll see that there's a timeout on non-conforming where you go to contingent. And I think that is set as something like 30 seconds. And the intent there isn't for that to be the primary mechanism to get to contingency. The primary mechanism should be that the UAS and or the operator knows that something is wrong and they manually trigger going to contingency as quick as they know about it. That 30 second timeout is simply a backstop like in baseball uh, to make sure that if for some reason that detection wasn't made and, and proactively the, the flight wasn't taken to the contingency state quickly, there's there's a backstop that will get it to that contingency state eventually. So so it, again, it's just important to understand important to understand that, that there's gradations of, of nonconformance. Most of them are going to be minor with an immediate correction. Uh, and we we handle all three of those situations that I outlined through the same set, set of states. 
Okay, so that's the state diagram. And then I've got three diagrams here just to illustrate the, the, the different cases. One that's nominal, one that goes to um, non-conforming, and one that goes to contingent. So in this first one, we have two operational intents, A and B here. And uh, you can see the, the operational intent volumes are drawn around the desired flight path down the middle. Uh, and in this case, the flights are perfectly conforming throughout the flight. They never go outside their operational intents. And that's the nominal path that we talked about. They are accepted, they're activated, they fly in conformance the whole time, and they end their flight. So that that's a real simple case. This next graphic, goes to the non-conforming case and this would be you know either the rumble strip version or one that's maybe a few seconds longer and you can see what happens is the flight on the left uh, as it's going uh, about halfway through its second uh, 4d volume in its operational tent it goes off course and and you know most like this is caused by by wind and so what happens is uh, in step one you see there the the uss is monitoring the position data against the operational intent and it sees that ah you've gone outside of your operational intent you've now gone into that non-conforming state and so what has to happen at that point what the standard requires is that the operator in the uss must update the operational intent with additional volumes or expanded volumes that encompass the anticipated area and time and non-conformance um, so in this case, you can see with that uh, projected uh, orange path there that it's going to, you know, round the curve a little bit, but then head right back into its operational intent and correct the situation. And the orange box uh, is a bounding area that uh, bounds that time and, and, and location where it's going to be out of conformance. That update to the operational intent is the trigger for all the notification, that, that situational awareness that we wanna to provide to the other operators in the area. So if you look at the figure there, you can see the orange box intersects part of the operational intent for operational intent B, someone else who happens to be flying in the same area. And that intersection is what triggers the notification. The, the owner of operational intent A is notified, hey, you're, you're affecting somebody else. And so the details of this modified operational intent with the expanded volume uh, are provided to the other uh, USS and to that operator so they can know about the situation and potentially take some evasive action if they need to. And then step three, the aircraft is entered back into conformance to its original operational intent. So at that point, we can drop the expanded operational intent, the orange box, um, and we're, we're just back to normal now. And we also would do notifications that, at that point so that the other uh, operators know that there's no longer an issue. Um, one thing I forgot to mention here in step two, when we do that notification, one of the things that those other uh, USSs uh, can do is request position data for the non-conforming aircraft. So normally we're not pushing that position data all the time to the other USSs, but in the case of an off-nominal, that's an occasion where having that information can be useful, uh, you know, potentially to, to, to do some maneuvering to avoid the aircraft. Now, the third diagram is what happens if, if I go into contingency. So it starts off just like the one we just covered. You can see it goes uh, out of conformance in the second uh, 40 volume. And the first thing that would happen there is we would detect non-conformance and the USS would be expected to update the operational intent to show where it's out of conformance. But something more is wrong in this case. So you see that the red, the aircraft is just continuing and, it, and it's not gonna be able to come back to conformance. So this is a contingency situation. 
Uh, and again, uh, the, the ideal here is that we're not going to wait 30 seconds to communicate that. The USS and the operator should recognize that situation quickly and should quickly advance their, their operational intent to the contingent state. Once that's done, though, uh, the basic mechanism is, is very much the same. We need to update the operational intent to show uh, to other operators what the anticipated area and time frame for uh, contingency in this case is. And that's represented by this large red circle. So, per, you know, perhaps that represents the range of the aircraft. So that information is added to the operational intent. Through the DSS, we're able to determine who are the affected uh, other operations so that we can then do that notification to each one of them say, hey, my, my flight has gone nonconformant or it's gone contingent um, and it intersects your operational intent. So here are the details. And then once again, those other operational intents have the ability at that point to request the position information for the, the, the contingent flight. The position information may not always be available. It depends on the nature of what's going wrong with that aircraft. Uh, you might, for example, have, have a lost link situation where you don't even have the position data, but to the extent that it's available, they can request it and have that information. So it's actually a fairly straightforward process. Uh, if, you, if you think back over this whole thread, uh, the net is that through the conformance monitoring function, we have the ability to detect when an aircraft is outside of its operational intent. Through the modifications to the operational intent and through the DSS, we have the ability to notify and provide the relevant information to the affected or the relevant uh, other operators and, and uh, operational intents, and to provide that uh, real-time position data if it's requested. Thank you very much, because I think this is getting really exciting. You know, it's it's uh, and it, it, to be honest, it is also somehow straightforward, I think. But there is one thing that really stood out to me in all what you described is that is this notion that you only provide the position information of the aircraft in and of nominal situation and only if requested. So yeah. uh, that seems to me like a paradigm shift and it's a significantly different model then, for example, the traffic information service that here in Europe we have seen the use space regulation and in general to what we are used to see. Like, uh, yeah. uh, could you comment on that? What what brought you guys to this to this decision? This is actually one of the most interesting topics uh, of discussion uh, for me, at least, that we've had over the past couple of years. And I was hoping we get into this. So again, I've got some uh, slides to illustrate this. And I guess the, the key point, though, is sort of a, a lead-in thesis, is that it's actually quite difficult for most people to use a, a situation display. The air traffic controllers, are, of course, very familiar with them, and they have extensive training and knowledge about how to use that information. But most uh, or a great percentage of the folks who are coming into the aviation community for drones don't have that kind of background. And I, and I would assert, and we'll try to provide some examples here, that it's hard to use that information uh, effectively uh, outside of off-nominal cases. And so let me try to make that case. The, the I've got a set of four slides here. And this first one, my pronunciation would be terrible, but this is in the Loire Valley, uh, the, the French uh, wine country. And uh, we, we picked a spot here where we uh, depicted uh, four UAS on a, on a situation display. And, uh, and, and we want to, to look at that and see, you know, what can you conclude from looking at this information? Uh, so in this case, you see that we've got a, a red UAS in the lower left-hand corner, 
Uh, and, and it's they're all kind of headed towards a convergence in the middle of this picture. There's a magenta one going across the bridge. Uh, there's a purple one that's coming from the northeast. And there's a yellow one that is coming from uh, the northwest of this figure. Uh, and the question I, I would ask when you're looking at this figure is, what can you conclude about this situation? And, and can you determine whether or not there's a problem and that there's something that needs to be done? And I would argue that you can't. It, it looks kind of scary because everything is headed in the same direction, but you don't really know what each one of these aircraft are going to do over the next few moments. So it, it's hard to be conclusive from just looking at this picture. The traffic information service, or most folks as they envision that, includes uh, a next waypoint. So you're getting a little bit of projection in the future. So if we go to the next diagram here, I've added a, a vector each, each one of those targets. And, and in this particular case, it kind of makes the situation look worse because everyone's, you know, continuing to head towards the same location. But again, I would ask the question, what can you conclude here? And again, I would assert you really can't conclude much because you still don't have the complete picture uh, of what's going on. So let's go one more figure. And on this next figure, before I, we throw it up, uh, what I'm going to do is add the operational intent information for each one of these aircraft and see if that helps us. So when we do, wow, this, this looks okay all of a sudden, because now we can see that the, the yellow one in the upper corner and uh, it's the operational intent is uh, around the field. And uh, you can kind of conclude that there's some kind of agricultural inspection that's going on with that particular flight. So even though it's current heading and its next waypoint is in the direction of this area of convergence, it's not gonna come down there. The purple one that was coming from the northeast, it's going right along a railroad. So it's doing something like a rail inspection. And uh, because the other ones uh, clip before they get to it, it doesn't conflict with anybody. The one in the lower, the southwest corner, the red one, uh, you can see that its operational tent is around an island. It's doing some kind of wildlife photography. So even though at the moment it's headed towards what looks like trouble, it's not going to keep going in that direction. And then same thing for the magenta one, it was going across that bridge. Well, it's going across that bridge because it's doing a bridge inspection and it's not gonna continue and go across the railroad tracks up above. So, you know, the conclusion you could draw from this might be, ah, oh, this is perfect. Um, I, I, I can give the current position data, I can give the next waypoint. And if I just add the operational intent information, now I've got everything I need in a situation display to make it really be useful to somebody. However, I would argue even that is, is a false conclusion. So I'm going to go to our fourth image, and it's also going to go show a set of operational intents. But you can see in this case, the operational intents are totally different. There's not a bunch of VLOS operations, in a, you know, a survey in a field or over an island or a bridge inspection. These are all VLOS type operations, and they all intersect. So again, I would ask the question, is this a problem or not? And I would assert it's very, very difficult for the typical person to look at this display and say it is a problem or it isn't, because it's not just the fact that these operational intents overlap. The question is, when do they overlap? Do they, in fact, intersect at the same location at the same time and re represent a conflict? Or are they all time separated and or altitude separated? And it, it's very challenging to tell just from looking at this. So, um, so just, you know, that kind of is background 
to, to say it's difficult for a typical person to use a, a situation display. I, I want to relate a, a little story that's something that happened with me working on an air traffic control system. This was about 20 years ago, actually. Uh, but I was working on the Oceanic Air Traffic Control System for the FAA. It's called ATOP, Advanced Technologies and Oceanic Procedures. And, and I was the system architect for that system at the time. And when you look at oceanic airspace, uh, one of the key things that happens there from an aircraft and a pilot perspective is that as they burn off fuel, they want to climb because it makes their flight more efficient. Uh, and so the most uh, common clearance request that we would get in oceanic airspace was a request for altitude. In some circumstances where if you have traffic, it's really nicely spaced out, uh, the controllers can give the pilot what's known as a cruise climb. So you might be going from you know flight, le flight level 290 to flight level 370. And, and the, that lets the aircraft just climb as they're able to. And as you go through an altitude and vacate it, then that frees up the airspace below you. But initially when you've got this cruise climb, it would block the airspace from 290 to 370, let's say. But the problem is you can't always grant uh, a cruise climb because there is other traffic in the area. And sometimes an aircraft could get uh, sort of stuck under another aircraft. And, and so they would they call it plowing air and they really want to get out from under the sky. So they would make a request to the controller and the controller will look at the situation. And the problem is that it was too complex for them to figure out how to give a clearance that would actually be safe. And the, and the question that you, you know, the, the thing that's striking about this is uh, these are controllers that had many years of experience in dealing with these complex situation on, the, on a situation display. They had a situation display. And in fact, they even had access to the flight data for the flight. So they, they knew the intent, you could say, but yet that they were they were still unable to issue these clearances. And the reason is because it was just too complicated to figure out how do I maintain my separation requirements and climb this aircraft through another one or two aircraft. And uh, so what happened in the ATOP timeframe is we added capabilities to the automation to do conflict detection automatically uh, and to assist the controllers in doing the conflict resolution. So typically when you're going to uh, do a climb like that, you would need to include some restrictions. If you climb to reach this altitude by this time or by this fix, and you combine a, some of those together, then you can find a way to get up to the altitude that you want. Uh, and the automation is able to help the controller do that. So when we introduced that, um, the number of altitude clearances granted went up drastically. The, it was very interesting. One of the most interesting conversations that I ever had was talking to Bill Simple, who was the head of Nats at the time. And his argument was that we shouldn't even have a situation display because it, it the automation needs to take care of this. And it's too hard for the controllers to, to figure it out using the situation display. And therefore, why do we even need a situation display? If the system is detecting the conflicts and assisting in generating the clearances that resolve the conflicts, why do you need this graphic picture? And and you talk about paradigm changing. That that was pretty radical at the time because there were you know, virtually no air traffic control systems at the time that didn't have a situation display. So, okay, so that's a, a long-winded tangent, but bring it back to UAS because it very much relates. This notion that it's really hard to draw conclusions effectively from a 2D representation of a 4D situation is why we emphasize providing that uh, that that um, a situational awareness data 
only in the case of, of an off-normal situation and only for the aircraft that was involved in it. Uh, the rest of the time, it's far better uh, to let your authorization service and the automatic conflict detection and resolution logic that you have handle that. And as long as you are deconflicted from the other flights, there is no point in looking at them. It's only the ones for which you don't know that you have a, 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 a conflict-free uh, situation that you might want to look at. So that's why in the context of our conformance monitoring for either non-conforming or contingent, we only provide that information during that off-normal situation and not all the time. It makes a lot of sense. And I, I can see many, many conversations, you know, in many different venues, you know, around this topic. I, I think this is extremely, you know, it's thought provoking. And I, and I mean, obviously I like it. You can see the digitalization and the innovation coming into this like a uh, big style, right? And, and uh, I'm sure many people will not be ready for it. There will be a lot of discussion around it, but I think it's very, I think, courageous, you know, from, from the ASDM side, from your side to, to push something like that and, and believing in the technology and the innovation that you are actually designing. So this is extremely interesting and thanks for, for the explanation. Yeah, we, we expect a lot of spirited conversations on this topic going forward. <laughs> That's for sure. That's for yeah. sure. All right, Mike. So uh, let's leave this topic for the moment. And uh, can you give us a quick overview about around constraint? That's the, the third, uh, you know, macro era you wanted to discuss, the third service constraints. I think of this as being a, a very straightforward thing for people to understand. The we constraints was that word was chosen because we wanted a very generic word to to uh, encapsulate the notion of providing information to operators and and there's a variety of types of information that could encompass. It could be something like an airspace restriction. It could be just information in some area, maybe there's a degradation to a particular communication service provider or something like that. So it, it's a, a very broad concept that can in, uh, accommodate a range of types of information. But the key thing about this information that is that it's tied to a particular area, uh, a volume of airspace, and that, it, and that it has temporal aspects to it. It has some time period when it's in effect and then goes away. In the standard, we defined um, two, two roles that a USS can provide, and a USS could do both. But one of them is the constraint uh, management role, uh, and one is the constraint processing role. And the idea of constraint management is that this is software that allows someone who's authorized to cre create constraints to uh, logically to draw them and to, to supply the timing and the other metadata associated with that constraint, and then inject it into uh, the, the UTM uh, ecosystem or into use space so that operators and, and through other USSs or USSPs uh, can be made aware of them. And so if you think about constraint management conceptually, it, it, you, you can kind of imagine you, you probably have some kind of a, a user interface that allows somebody to draw where it is, uh, to specify the vertical extents, to you know provide the timing information, and then some range of, of metadata that goes along with it to characterize the information. And then on the constraint processing side, the uh, um, this is kind of like uh, it's it, it's not unlike when you're doing uh, flight planning. You, you need to be aware of other operational intents in the area. Uh, you just need to be aware of these constraints in the area as well, and it's the additional information that can be provided to the operator and be factored into their planning process. The underlying construct that we used for constraints is exactly the same as what we use for operational intents. It's a set of one or more 40 volumes. Um, so sometimes it can be real simple, just one area, just one polygon. 
if it happens to be something that is moving, let's say like, uh, uh, you know, maybe it's, a well, I, I kind of think of a, a moving TFR. They're not TFRs, but but the same idea of a moving TFR where you've got something that is moving through airspace. You could have a sequence of volumes that have time that uh, aligns with when this phenomenon moves through the air. They are posted to the DSS, just like operational intents. And when uh, a USS does a query into the DSS to find other relevant operational intents, they would do exactly the same thing to find the relevant constraints. And some of the other mechanisms that we have built in. So for example, if I, and we talked just a moment ago about a non-conforming or a contingent aircraft, when we detect that the, the modified operational intent now intersects some other operational intent, we have mechanisms to push that information to the affected USS so that the operator is aware. The same thing can happen with constraints. You can have a subscription in the DSS. All, all operational intents have an implied subscription in the DSS. So if someone creates a new constraint that affects an operational intent you've already got in the system, you're going to be automatically notified uh, uh, about that new constraint. In, in the context of, of use space, we think the main thing where the constraint construct could be useful is for things that are dynamic. Uh, a, a lot of airspace information will be fairly static and can be published in advance with effective times, kind of like aeronautical data on 28 or 56 day update cycles. But, but there will also be some situations where things are more tactical and uh, they're, they're short-lived little situations. And that's where the constraint construct could be used. And it's nice because it has that built-in mechanism to make sure that everyone that's affected by it is notified. And anybody that comes along later to plan a new operational intent, they will discover it as part of doing their discovery through the DSS. Excellent, Mike. Thank you. Thank you very much. And, uh, you know, we are running short of time and, uh, you know, I'll be I would be glad to be talking with you like for the next five hours around around the topics of this standard. It's uh, extremely interesting. I'm sure it's interesting for everybody that is watching this. The, so thank you again. And I think it was extremely, extremely informational uh, for myself and all our audience. And uh, before, you know, we wrap everything up, I'd like to spend a moment on Remote ID. Uh, going sure. back to where we started a little bit, uh, particularly the network side of Remote ID. We have seen that uh, you know Switzerland has announced uh, the launch of their uh, nationwide remote ID service, which is developed entirely in accordance with the ASTM standard, right? Yep. So it seems to me that we are finally moving from paper to real, you know, operationalized services uh, at the nationwide level. So, what are the highlights of this uh, of these standards actually relative to network? Uh, can, what can you tell us? It's really exciting to see what's happening in Switzerland. And we've been doing a lot of demonstrations and fairly substantial demonstrations over the recent few years uh, where we would get, uh, you know, several USS or USSP implementers together, you know, a half a dozen, eight, something like that, and demonstrate the system. And to see all that work now culminating in, in a live operation in the case of Switzerland is extremely exciting to, to see that happen. I've brought along here the figure from the ASTM remote ID standard, and we can use that to quickly give you an overview of the highlights of the, of the remote ID service. In this particular fig figure, you can see that we that, that standard encompasses both the broadcast form of remote ID as well as the network form. 
so the broadcast as the top uh, is at the top. We won't spend much time talking about that at all. I mean, it's it's fairly straightforward. There's equipment on the aircraft. It knows its ID, its location. It's broadcasting out through a signal, uh, and people that are in the vicinity uh, of uh, you know the range of that signal can pick it up and display it. So broadcast is very straightforward to understand. Network is shown on the lower half of the diagram, and it, it would really be appropriate to think of network remote ID as another UTM or U-Space related service. We defined two roles for USSs in the context of network remote ID. And you can see on the left there, we have something called a, a NetRID service provider. And that is the role where you're talking to the aircraft and you're receiving the position, position information and the identification information. And then on the right, we have another role called the net or ID display provider. Uh, and the purpose of this role is to talk to the consumers of the information, the apps that law enforcement or just an average citizen is using. Uh, and they see something up in the sky, they pull out their app, they say, I'd like, you know, I'm here, I wanna see what this is. And uh, so the display providers service those apps so that people can see the information. And the, the basic way this works is very straightforward. When when a user on an app comes in and says, I would like to, to see the aircraft in, in my, my area, that geographic area is provided to the display provider. The display provider is going to use the DSS that we talked about last time, um, and it's going to do a, a query. It's going to take that area that, of interest to, to the end user, and it's going to go to the DS and say, who has flights in this area uh, that are that I can get remote ID information for? And the DSS is going to do its thing. It's going to say, well, these three USSs have flights in the area, and here's the, the URL that you would use to contact them. And then that display provider uses the standardized APIs that are defined in the standard to go contact those service providers to get the information. And so it calls each one of them, it gets the data, it aggregates it back together when it receives all of it, and then it hands it to the display app. And now that user has a picture of what's flying around up in the air. Um, so, so very straightforward. There are some, you know, relative benefits for, for both techniques, whether you're using broadcast or network. Obviously, if you're in a remote area, it, it would be difficult to use network because you may not have access to the network and you may have to rely on broadcast in order to be able to, to identify an aircraft. But in a lot of cases and, and a lot of use cases for drones tend to be in population center areas. Delivery as an example, you, you want to deliver where there's lots of people. Uh, and that tends to be where we have good coverage for, for network access. And one of the benefits to the end users, take law enforcement, for example, is they no longer have to be in the vicinity of, of the UAS uh, in the range of the broadcast signal. Uh, they can be anywhere and, uh, and you know, zoom to a particular location on a map and, uh, you know, because somebody called and said there's a problem there, they can check that out remotely and see what's going on. Another situation that can occur is you have a, a fast moving UAS that goes through the area and you know it's not supposed to be there. You try to whip out your phone and bring up the app so you can identify it. And by the time you've done all that, the drone is out of range because there's a relatively limited range uh, on the broadcast signals. But with, with network, we've specified it so that you have the ability to access what we call near, near real-time data for UAS, which means you can see what was there some amount of time in the past. 
And and so you're not in this race to pull out your phone and, and get it identified, uh, you know, while you still can, you have a little more time uh, to be able to do that identification. So being able to access it remotely and, and, and having some access to historical data are both very beneficial. The, I, one other thing I would mention about network is that you know, one of the concerns with this information that, that has been talked about a lot throughout the community is, is the issue of privacy. And if you think uh, about traditional aviation, uh, this point's been made many times, but you have aircraft flying to and from airports. Generally speaking, they have a bunch of anonymous passengers flying on them. And so there's there's not as much of a privacy concern associated in that scenario as there potentially can be with drones where you have a drone flying from a particular business to a particular home address, let's say. And uh, and you can start to you know discern some patterns of life uh, type information if you're able to look at all that information in detail and to look at it over a period of time. Uh, so one of the things we did as we were specifying the network side is to put in some privacy controls that uh, limits the range of how far you can see. I mean, if you think about the normal use case, and the normal use case would be law enforcement uh, see something that they need to know who that is, or a citizen sees somebody that they think is doing something wrong and they need to know who that is. That's generally something that you can see locally. So it doesn't make sense to, to you know, in that context, uh, provide the end user the ability to see a whole state or the whole country with every drone that's up there. They only really need to see the ones that are in close proximity to where they're standing. And that winds up contributing some to the safety, uh, I'm sorry, to the privacy posture that, that we'd like to see. Um, so we can put limits on the network side to bound how far out you can see. And, uh, and at certain ranges, we can also aggregate information uh, to be less specific. And, and that helps with the privacy concerns. Just because the figure's been up here and people may wonder what it is, there at the bottom on the left, you see intent-based uh, operation uh, reported pre-flight. What does that mean? Regulators may or may not choose to use this, but the idea is that for some of the aircraft that is out there, that maybe it's legacy aircraft, maybe it's uh, the modeling community, for example, and uh, the idea is that they're not equipped to participate either in broadcast or network, but they could participate by filing their intent in advance, uh, and then that can be reported through the network in the same way that the live data would be, be reported. And that's actually, you know, something that can be done very quickly as an initial uh, network remote ID capability, because it doesn't require any equipage on the aircraft uh, and very little infrastructure uh, to, to, to support. But again, it's up to the regulator to decide whether or not they want to use that type of capability, and, and we'll see what they decide to do. Mike, thank you very much. I, I think it was uh, it was uh, very, very good as well. And uh, I like the fact that you mentioned uh, that network remote ID, it, it's nothing else than another UTM service at the end of the day. Yeah. Like we can try to categorize in a different way. But fundamentally, as far as at least the ASTM standard is concerned, it's just another block you know that is on top of the dss paradigm that we discussed last time and you know and, and all the services associated with that so that's that's very interesting again to see how the notion of building upon you know technology and standards is 
applied here very, very clearly, right? We're not reinventing the wheel. We're not creating new systems where there are not, no need to, to do that. So that's very, very good. Interesting. It's a good point that you brought up, Lorenzo. Um, and we've stressed this in a couple of the other videos, but it's worth mentioning here as well. That when we developed the DSS concept, we actually brought the two standards groups together, the one that was doing remote ID and the one that was doing the USS interoperability for exactly the reason you said, this should be a common uh, service that can be used across multiple uh, UTM services, as opposed to coming up with a totally different paradigm as, as we do each new service. That was, so that was very deliberate, very much the intent. And uh, I was glad to hear you note that. It's, it's, it's sinking in with everybody that we did that deliberately. All right, Mike, I think we are really out of time, but uh, you know we couldn't resist uh, to, to, to speak a little bit about network as well and uh, in the moment. So thank you again very, very much, Mike, for, for your time. I think this uh, two video series will be extremely informative for everybody interested in UTM, U-Space. So thank you again for your time. Enjoyed it very much. Thanks, Lorenzo. Brought to you by Drone Talks Online, a platform designed to spread ideas and educate in the drone ecosystem. Search for dronetalks.online to hear from more of our industry leaders and to find out how you can get involved.